everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Weekly Walk. I'm your host, Joshua Ingram. It is Monday, November 7th, year of our Lord, 2022. And this is episode number 76. I'm pretty sure I've talked about this before on the podcast. Um, but I was just thinking about it fresh. And so I, I wanted to bring it up again. If it's something you've already heard me talk about, feel free to skip this section. Um, but it, and, and I'll I'll keep it real brief. But I'm reading a book um, by George Ladd on um, the tribulation period, the the, the rapture theory. Um, a while back, so just to give you some context. Um, why I'm reading it really. When, when I first got saved, I, um, got saved in the midst of the Left Behind series being written. Like, uh, a few of the books were already out and then like new ones were, were being written and released on a yearly basis almost. Or maybe it was even quicker than that. I, I, I'm not sure, but I remember that I was really interested in them and, um, read them with, with, with passion. You know, I was, I would, I would get so excited waiting for the next, uh, book to come out. Um, because I, I, when I first got saved, I was, uh, persuaded that we were living in the last days and that, um, we were the last generation and we would live to see the return of the King. And so I really, really wanted to understand the book of revelation, which is, um, a very complex book. Um, it's, it's hard to, it's, it's not written in plain, straightforward language like the rest of scriptures. Um, it's written in visions and, and, um, um, uh, visual word pictures that are hard to explain. So, so that being the case, there's, there's multiple different interpretations out there on, on what revelation means or how to read it. And, you know, I, it, it just, if you if you hear other opinions about it, it just convolutes the issue. But um, unfortunately, when I was young in the faith, that's what I did. I, I I wanted to understand it so badly that when I found this Left Behind series, I I thought it made sense, and I was like, wow, uh, this really clarifies uh, the Book of Revelation. It makes everything make sense, and it was written in a a fun like almost uh, like Mission Impossible James Bond type style. It was kind of it was just a fun book to read. And so after reading those, I thought I had it all figured out. You know, I thought I understood the, the chronology and the, 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 the different events that were going to take place and whatnot. Um, but again, I read those as a baby Christian with no understanding. Um, fast forward a couple of years, I'm, I'm in the word on a daily basis, reading the word for myself, studying the word. Um, I still have this, um, this desire in my heart to understand end times. I still have this belief that we're living in the last days. Like that was one of my early passions in the faith. And so I'm, I'm, you know, often thinking about that as I'm reading the scriptures. Um, but now I'm studying that I'm on my own apart from this left behind series. And I, I start to realize that, um, this whole idea of a secret rapture, um, prior to the tribulation events, uh, just is not biblical. It's it's not in the scriptures. That it's nowhere to be found, and so I'm studying that out, and that that led me down a whole rabbit trail of. Then I started wondering, like, well, if this isn't clearly taught in the scriptures, because it's it's not. It's it's the the uh, secret rapture is not in the Bible. So then I immediately started thinking, why do so many people believe it then? How come every, pretty much every Christian I come across believes in this? Where are they getting it from? What, what, where is this teaching coming from? Why is it so permeated throughout the church? And so I, I ended up studying that a lot and um, found the that it was a Jesuit conspiracy. I traced it back to um, like the, the, the Schofield Bible, C.I. Schofield um, in the 50s. And then he traced that back. Um, to, to the Plymouth Brethren movement um, in England uh, with John Nelson Darby and, um, oh, what was the other guy's name? I can't remember right now off the top of my head, but I traced it back to that in the late 1800s, this, this Brethren movement. 
and um, that it was based on um, some girl, little girl supposedly speaking in tongues and having visions. And then um, I also found that uh, the, the guy who, Irving, that was his name, Irving, uh, with the Plymouth Brethren movement, he was so heavy into this because he had discovered a book um, written uh, by Rabbi Ben Ezra um, about the coming of the Lord. And it, it had this future Antichrist figure and, and this 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 whole futurism idea Um but this this book was Ben Rabbi Ben Ezra was actually a pen name I discovered, and his real name was um, Ribera or I think that was it. Um, I'm I'm talking off a of memory here from something I researched years ago, but it was like Francisco Ribera or something like that. He was a Jesuit priest um, who wrote this book, knowing that. Protestants would not accept it if they knew it was coming from a Jesuit. Um, so he was deceptive and wrote it under this pen name. Um, he figured if it was written by a converted Jew, uh, the Protestants would be all over it. Um, so he wrote it under this pen name, Rabbi Ben Ezra. Um, but then from there, I traced it back to, um, you get into the whole futurism idea, which, which, um, versus preterist idea versus, um, like a, like a kind of ongoing revelation. Preterism teaches that like revelation, um, all the end times prophecies were fulfilled in 70 AD in like a spiritual manner. Um, I think I, I haven't looked too much into it because I was just dismissed it as nonsense. Like the main thing that, that, d uh, dissuades me, is that, is that a word? Disway instead of persuade, dissuades. It, the thing that uh, deters me from believing in preterism is that when Jesus talked about the end times and the tribulation that would accompany it, he said that it would be so bad, it would be worse than anything the world has ever seen or ever will see. And the events in 70 AD, although tragic, you certainly can't say that's the worst it's ever been. Um, plus, in Thessalonians, Paul talked about how uh, the end wouldn't come until the man of sin was revealed and the great falling away had occurred. Um, so again, and, and on top of that, uh, the book of Revelation was wit written by the Apostle John when he was on the island of Patmos. And he didn't even write it until 90-something A.D. So he wrote it after the events of 70 A.D. Um, so the preterism is is foolishness to me, so I dismiss it. And then you start thinking about, like, I, I, so basically I, I do subscribe to futurism. Um, I believe that the events of the book of Revelation are written specifically about the end times, about the tribulation period, about the time of Jacob's trouble, about this 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 period of time that's going to happen at the end um when the beast system you know this this antichrist devil rulership is over the world um but there's also i feel like the truth lies somewhere in between kind of because I, I like i say i believe revelation is written that way but when you talk about the anti because the book of revelation doesn't men mention antichrist the name Antichrist gets applied to figures in the book of Revelation, and I don't know if it's accurate to apply it or not. While these figures are certainly Antichrist in nation or in nature, like the beast and the woman who rides the beast and the and the 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 second beast and the false prophet, of course they're all very Antichrist, anti-Christian. Um, but can you apply the phrase? antichrist capital a to them i don't know and the old and and all throughout the new testament it's like you only find that phrase i think in the in uh the gospel or not the gospel but in um first john i think where he talks about how there's a spirit of anti he says like you've heard that antichrist is coming even now i tell you there are many antichrists and he talks about the spirit of antichrist um, so, uh, that phrase antichrist gets applied to all these figures in the book of revelation. It also gets applied to the man of sin in Thessalonians. It gets applied, um, to the little horn in the book of Daniel. And I don't know if that's an accurate way to do that. I don't know if all those things are talking about the same thing. I believe the book of revelation is mainly focusing on a beast system, not, not a, not a central figure. It's, it's, it's focusing on a worldwide 
wide antichrist system, a new world order that is going to persecute Christians and enforce a, a worldwide um, global economy system in which everybody has to take a mark of, of allegiance to this system. Um, the, a beast in the book of Daniel is defined as an empire, a world government. And so when Revelation talks about a beast, I, I believe it's talking not about a figurehead, but about a system. And um, that system will be Antichrist and will persecute Christians. And uh, Revelation 17 says that it's a woman that rides the beast, a woman directing and controlling. And then Revelation 17 goes on to describe exactly who this woman is. And it describes it as a city. Um, and, and there's the city on seven hills. It's, it's Rome. It's, it's the Roman Catholic institution that controls this beast, controls the New World Order system. Um, so I believe Revelation is telling us about a Roman Catholic, uh, a Roman Catholic um, system um, that'll, that, that sets up a worldwide government uh, that oversees or, or is the power behind, the driving force behind a New World Order, a world government. Um, and that's what Revelation is talking about. Um, however, I do agree with um, a lot of uh, before this futuristic. So I, like I say, I see, I, I'm, and I, I apologize, I'm kind of babbling here. I'm, there's like a whole ton of information in my head that I'm trying to um, synchronize and, and put in like a logical step-by-step uh, -step process. But um, before futurism really became the view um the man of sin and the little horn and the Antichrist were identified as Roman Catholicism, as the Pope. Uh, that's what the Protestant Reformation believed. Uh, that's what Zwingli and, and Martin Luther and John Calvin and and all those guys, you know, up through the, the Whitfields and the Edwards and the Spurgeons. And, you know, they all believed through their study that the man of sin was Rome. And, and the little horn in the book of Daniel was Roman Catholicism. And, and the son of perdition was uh, Rome, the, and its head, the Pope, whoever the current Pope is. And I believe that as well. I think that's incredibly accurate. I believe that that's one of the more clear things shown in scriptures, especially the little horn prophecy. If you go and read that and then compare uh, the little horn with the history of Rome, with the formation of the Roman church, it's pretty crazy. It's it's spot on. Um, so I believe that, that Rome is... The if you want to give that title Antichrist um, to the man of sin, to the little horn, then then Rome is the Antichrist. Um, but I believe the Book of Revelation is talking about a future uh, New World Order kingdom headed up by this Antichrist, headed up by this woman, the little horn, the woman, the little horn, the man of sin, the son of perdition are all the same, <coughs> and it's um. Uh, uh, Rome. So anyways, uh, but so through the study of this Rabbi Ben Ezra, I found that it, you could trace it even back further to another Jesuit priest in like, uh, Martin Luther's time, um, the 14, 1500s, whatever that was. I forget what his name was. Um, I, I want to, I feel like it was similar to, um, uh, Ribera. It was like Riviera or something like that. I don't, I don't recall off the top of my head, but, um, he came up with this idea because, uh, the Jesuits, um, were upset that the Reformation was occurring. Um, popery, the, the Roman Catholic institution was losing its power, was losing its influence over Europe. So like when, when, when Rome, um, took power, uh, they call it the Dark Ages because the European nations were in darkness. They were ignorant people. They were illiterate. They were unlearned. There, was, there wasn't uh, mass production of reading materials. The Bible wasn't readily available. And if it was, it was written in Latin, um, so nobody could understand it. Um, through that and, and through a continual process of corruption, 
um, through through the influence of pagan um, mystery Babylon um, interbreeding with Christianity in the Catholic institution, um, you started to have this this blasphemous beast system um, where they worshipped the the golden chalice and the and the 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 wafer and and believed in things like purgatory and 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 praying to dead saints and angels and eventually Mary was turned into the queen of heaven and and became co-mediatrix all these blasphemous things that were introduced um like i say through through the the interbreeding of of mystery babylon paganism um under the guise of christianity and because you had an ignorant populace they went along with it they were uh, frightened and threatened uh, that they would go to hell if they didn't follow the edicts of the Catholic Church or the Catholic institution. And so you had this dark age where nobody knew the truth, where they felt like they had to go to the priest to get the truth, and the, and the priest would mislead them uh, with this Babylonian mystery um, hybrid. And so, um, and you had entire countries under the sway of Rome because kings and queens and princes uh, would also be held under this fear of hell. And, and believing that it was the, the Catholic institution um, that would send them to hell if they didn't do what they were told. So then you fast forward to the Reformation, and uh, the Bible be, is readily available now because the, the Muslims had invaded uh, Eastern Orthodox Church, you know, Constantinople, and um, forced Christians to flee for their lives. And so you had all these 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 uh, Greek uh, Christians fleeing um, into Europe, and they were bringing with them the original Greek manuscripts. And so all of a sudden you had um, like Wycliffe and Zwingli who had the Bible available to them for the first time, and, you know, other than the Latin Vulgate. And they start reading the real Bible, the 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 original Greek manuscripts, and finding um, all these errors in the Catholic institution, finding that they had been deceived, that they had been lied to, and that's why the Reformation happened. Um, you had all these men of God uh, that had found the truth in the Scriptures and were trying to reform the Church. They were trying to 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 work the errors out to get rid of it, you know, and eventually they found it was too corrupt and they just had to separate. Um, but these men, um, through their studies of the scriptures, found that that Rome was the Antichrist, that the seat of Pope was what was described as the, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist. And um, the Jesuits, uh, because of that, Rome lost its influence over the European nations. Kings and queens were no longer afraid of the Pope. They knew the truth of the, the light had come. They knew the truth. They knew that Pope had no power. He couldn't send them to hell. And so what did Popery do? What did Rome do? It, it fought back to get control. It maintained sway over certain nations, like when England broke off and it still had sway over Italy and over Spain, Portugal and whatnot. That's why you get all these wars, uh, because they would threaten these these kings and queens that they still had rule over. Like, hey, you need to fight for the faith. You need to go attack these heretics. And so, you know, under this misleading and, and deception, you get all these wars uh, and, and chaos. Um, but at the same time, people are getting saved left and right because uh, by the miraculous providence of God, the printing press became um, available too. It was invented around that same time. So now Bibles, real Bibles, the real Bible comes into Europe and the printing press is invented. And now there can be mass production of the Bible and the Bible's getting into the hands of every regular Joe. And so people are being saved left and right. People are waking up. These countries are coming out of this darkness and Rome is losing its influence, losing its power and losing money because, you know, they're, they're getting all this money from their, their scams, you know, pay to get your family out of purgatory. That's what drove Martin Luther uh, to nail his 95 thesis. And, and so you have all these events going on and, and Rome's losing its power. So they start the Inquisition. That's what the Inquisition was about, where they would um, arrest and, and, and beat and torture Christians to renounce their faith and to submit to the Roman Catholic institution. Um, if you look into like the Waldenses um, or, or other, you know, biblical communities that were slaughtered 
uh, by Rome. Uh, I think Fox's Book of Martyrs estimates like 50 million Bible Christians were killed during this period um, because they wouldn't acknowledge the power of Rome. Like Rome would come around and hold up their, their wafer and say, you know, submit and admit that this is the actual body of Jesus Christ or we'll kill you. And they wouldn't, you know, or, you know, if you're found with a Bible, we'll kill you. Um, all these blasphemies that were done uh, during the Inquisition. Uh, but Rome learned that uh, they can't stop. The power of the gospel was spreading. Light had come and people were being saved. And even though they threatened all this persecution and violence and murder, they were unable to stop this spread. So the Jesuits, which are like the secret society of, of Roman Catholicism, they're like the CIA of, of Roman Catholicism, um, the spies, uh, you know, if you, if you look into like the Jesuit oath, it's pretty frightening. You know, they take an oath that they'll, they'll murder, you know, for Rome. And, um, but they got together and they said, okay, how, how do we stop this? You know, because not only are we losing power, but we, these people are calling us out as the antichrist. And so you have people all over Europe recognizing Rome is the Antichrist system. It's not Christianity. It, it is Mystery Babylon repackaged in, with Christian titles. It is an Antichrist religion. And so what they did was they, they sat down and they, they reinterpreted Daniel chapter 9, um, a prophecy about the, coming of, the first coming of Christ. Um, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, I believe, um, is, a, is an amazing uh, spot-on-to-the-date prophecy um, about the, the coming of Jesus in, in um, 30 AD, 27 AD. Um, it talks about how uh, from the time to rebuild uh, Jerusalem until the anointing of the Messiah would be 483 years. Um, the, the command went forth in 457 BC. I believe that's recorded in Ezra. And then in 27 AD, um, Jesus was baptized. He was anointed and, and he was identified by John as the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He was identified as the Messiah. You know, God, the father spoke from heaven and the spirit descended on him. And that's recorded in Luke, uh, chapter two, I believe the, the date is given it's 27 AD, exactly 483 years after the command rebuild. So Daniel's prof Daniel's prophecy is fulfilled to the date and Jesus is anointed. And then Jesus uh, preaches to the Jews, he, you know, their final week, their, their 70th week. Um, but he's cut off in the midst of the week, um, not for himself, but for us, you know, and he takes away sin. He takes away obla um, ob uh, oblation. So like that, if you read Daniel 9, uh, that prophecy was fulfilled uh, when Jesus came the first time. But what these Jesuits did was they reinterpreted that um, to, to, they, 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 they twisted it and said, no, this is a prophecy about a future coming Antichrist. And so uh, basically what they said was Rome can't be Antichrist because Antichrist is future. Um, so they took the attention off of Rome and, and placed it on some future Antichrist. And that deception has permeated uh, Protestant faith until this day, in, uh, in, you know, where, where everybody's looking for some future Antichrist figure instead of looking at Rome and going, no, there's Antichrist right there. She's always been with us. Um, she's just subdued right now because she doesn't have the power she once had. But she's working behind the scenes to regain that power. Um, you know, when you look at like the UN and, and the European Union and their submission to popery and how she's pulling strings behind the scenes, uh, popery is still the Antichrist and is going to set up this beast system that the book of Revelation talks about. So it's, it's the idea of futurism <clears throat> saying Antichrist's future is wrong. But the beast system is future. Antichrist is with us right now. Antichrist is the Vatican, is, is popery. <clears throat> um, wow, I really went off on a tangent I did not expect to go on there. But um, how does this all tie into the George Ladd book I'm reading? Um, so 
like I say, I, I was led astray by the Left Behind series. I was straightened out by reading the scriptures. And then I, I did a deep dive study to figure out why people believe in the pre-trib rapture and found that it's because of this deception that came through the Jesuits. That this 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 whole future Antichrist deception came through the Jesuits. And then through... Um, so then you have uh, William Irving and the Plymouth Brethren um, finding this book by Ben Ezra, who had been influenced by this previous generations of, of Jesuits, um, and Irving buying into this idea of a future coming Antichrist. And then he's further deceived by these supposed prophecies and visions that are given to this little girl about a secret rapture that happens before Antichrist comes. And so then that gets spread throughout that Brethren movement and then gets introduced into America uh, through Darby and, and through um, C.I. Schofield and, such a, and, and, and so on and so forth um, till today where, where major seminaries and schools are teaching um, that, that philosophy, this Jesuit teaching and this supposed prophecy of this little girl um, are, are now being taught. And so you have a whole generation of Christians uh, where a vast majority of them believe in some future coming Antichrist and, and they believe that we'll be raptured out of here before it happens. And so um, once I discovered all this, I, I started trying to piece together, okay, how would I identify myself then? I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a, I do believe in a, in a literal thousand year period where Christ is coming back and, and I believe that um, he, Christ will return and, and establish that thousand years, that his return is the mark that, that starts that thousand years. And so that would make me premillennial. But premillennial has this um, attachment with pre-trib, where if you say you're premillennial, uh, most people would assume that you believe in this pre-tribulation rapture theory. And I don't. So I was like, well, what, what, where, where, where do I stand on that? I am pre-mill. I do believe that, you know, the book of Revelation is, is um, occurring in real time in his future. And I, I believe in this in a literal thousand year period that started when Christ literally physically returns to earth. So I'm not a-mill. I'm not post-mill. I am pre-mill, but I'm not pre-trib. And then it's like, okay, um, then this idea of when, and I, I would say like, uh, pre-wrath, post-trib, you got all these things. And, and like, I never really knew how I fit into to all this. Um, and then I discovered hit what's called historical premillennialism, which, which I, I hadn't heard about, you know, it's, it, you just, it's, it's not something that's taught. What's most common is this dispensational premillennialism with the rapture, the secret rapture theory. This idea of historical premillennialism goes back to the first century church and says this is what the early church believed. They believed that um, Christ would return and establish his millennium. There was no thought of a rapture. There was no thought that um, we're, we're going to escape tribulation. There was a thought that you know the world will progressively get worse and worse and evil will wax worse and worse, and then and then uh, persecution will grow, and uh, will be persecuted and hated and killed and slaughtered worldwide, and then Christ will return and establish his millennium, and that's what I believe. So I was like, yeah, I got really excited to find out about historical premillennialism, and then I, I found that I believe my, my favorite teacher, uh, Charles Spurgeon, believed this as well, and that made me even more excited. And then I found um, that the, the, I had heard that the best writer on the topic um, of our modern era is this George Ladd. And so I started uh, reading, I, I read one of his books maybe a year or two ago, and now I'm reading another one. And wow, man, that was just, a, I did, like I say, I did not intend to say all that. I intended to talk about something completely different. And so I just gave you all that background just to bring you to this one point here uh, to tell you why I'm reading George Ladd. But as I'm reading George Ladd, I'm, you know, my mind, of course, is thinking about end times. And so it led me back to this idea that I've, I've frequently had um, that I, I call the Sabbath millennium theory. And um, so if, if, if you study the, the genealogies in the Bible, 
Um, you find that Earth is approximately um, 6,000 years old. Um, if you if you just read through the genealogies that are given and, and add up all the, the dates, you're going to come to, you know, 6,000, 6,500 years, something like that. Um, and Usher wrote a book years and years and years ago, um, well, hundreds of years ago, actually, uh, where he placed the start date at 404 BC. And I think that's the most commonly accepted um, answer. The, the genealogies, they're, they're hard to piece together. There's a few genealogies that, that um, skip a name or two or um, don't give like precise dates. So you, it's really hard to get exact math. The best we can do is get a rough estimate. Uh, but I think most people accept Usher's estimate as, as probably the most accurate. And he puts uh, creation at 4004 BC. That, that's when Adam and Eve were made. And so with that as our reference point, we're going to go 4004 BC. I had this idea um, based on the scripture saying that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years. And so I started thinking God created um, everything in six days. And then on the seventh day, he rested. And so if I take that day to a thousand year period and I look at a human history um, under the light of that analogy of the, 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 the one day equal in a thousand years, I can go, okay, if, if God created everything in six days and rested the seventh day, I find it interesting that the millennium, which is a thousand year period mentioned in the book of Revelation uh, chapter 20, is, is a rest period. It's, it's, you know, we're told in the scriptures that we can enter into Christ's rest. There's a rest that still awaits for us. We're going to rest. And the, and the millennium is that rest. We're going into that millennium um, where there will be no more war. Uh, nations will turn their weapons into plows. Um, if somebody dies at the age of 100, they're considered just an infant. It talks about how young children will play with snakes uh, the wolf and the lamb will lay down together, and Christ will rule on earth with a rod of iron. It'll be a time of peace, a time of rest. So that I look at that that millennium period as the Sabbath. And so then if that's the seventh day, then I thought, well, if I calculate back, I find it pretty interesting. Um, because if 4004 was the start date, 4004 to 3004 BC would be day one. 3004 BC to 2004 BC would be day two. 2004 BC to 1004 BC would be day three. 1004 BC to 4 BC, which is when Christ was born, would be day four. And so when Christ is born, he's starting day five in this thousand-year day analogy. And it, that gives even more em emphasis and clarity to the idea when, when Jesus would talk about how we're in the last days. He would say, you know, in these last days, or we're in the last days. And somebody could look at it and go, well, that was 2,000 years ago, and we're still here, so how could that be the last days? Well, if it's talking about the day thousand-year analogy, four days had already occurred, um, there's only three left, so he was, in fact, in the last days. Um, so 4 BC to 996 AD would be day five, and then 996 to 1996 would be day six, which would mean the six days are done. All that remains is the Sabbath, which would which would give added emphasis and 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 um urgency to the idea that we're living in the last days that we we truly are at the very end um if, if this sabbath millennium theory is correct <clears throat> and i think it just it's an interesting theory that that you can <coughs> excuse me add um to help you to 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 add um additional 
ammo, so to speak, if you're trying to prove that we're living in the last days. I would say you can look at Timothy and its description of society. Um, you can look at the increase of earthquakes and famines and pestilence. Uh, you can look at the wars. You can look at the reformation of Israel in the 40s. Um, you can look at the, the, the UN and the being set up and, and being a foundation for a new world order, for a beast system. You can look at the, the push for implantable microchips that can do our buying and selling. Um, you can look at all those things that you can look at the increase of travel and knowledge as prophesied in Daniel. All those things point to the idea that we're in the very, very end. Like we may be the last generation. And then I think this, this day, thousand year idea also adds to that. Because if 4004 was an accurate date, um, then, then 1996 should have been the end of day six, and we should be in the Sabbath. Now, 4004, if my theory is correct, obviously isn't the right day. And we're, I'm not date setting because nobody knows. All I'm saying is, uh, it, it, we're certainly towards the end. I think, you know, I've started thinking like, well, 4004, maybe that's when time started, but maybe Adam and Eve were created 30, 40 years before that, maybe a hundred years. Maybe, maybe it was a hundred years before they actually ate from that tree, before they actually disobeyed God and brought death into the world. And so maybe uh, the second law of thermodynamics, the winding down of, of things, the, the start of time, the start of decay, maybe that didn't occur for the first hundred years. Maybe Adam and Eve were, were perfected beings with no aging process until they ate. And so if that's the case, then then we can set that prophetic clock back, you know, 30, 40 years or whatever. And then 1996 wouldn't be the end date. 2026 would be the end date or 2036 or, or you know, however, however long. Nobody knows the day or the hour. All I'm saying is that it adds um, some validity to the idea that we're in the very, very last days. And I find it interesting that... Um, the New World Order people want to establish their New World Order by 2030, the Great Reset. Um, so all, all these things, when you look at them all together, they're all what would be called in the court of law circumstantial evidence. You know, But when taken all together as a whole, I think it shows that, that we very well could be the last generation. Um, yeah, so just some thoughts I wanted to share. good conversation with one of my brothers um, during our Bible study this morning regarding the issue of gluttony and um, you know it was heated uh, we were both vehemently presenting our points but it was also very good very edifying I think I think we were able to wrestle through our disagreements and come to somewhat of an understanding. I, I don't know if we're seeing exactly eye to eye on the subject now, but um, <clears throat> I was hoping I could recapture some of it here on the podcast. It was based in um, Proverbs 25. I think it's verse 16 or, or somewhere around there that says um, basically eat as much honey as it as is sufficient for you. Um, and then it says something else there I can't remember, but the point is, eat as much as as sufficient for you. And so my idea was that I'm taking sufficient to mean satisfactory. Um, eating till you're satisfied. Eating until... Uh, the word itself, I think, in, in the... Uh, Strong's concordance means enough. So eat as is as much as enough for you. And I take that to mean until you're satisfied. And it's I, I take it also to mean not just honey, but a general principle of eating till you're satisfied, eating till you're full. And I think that individuals have different full levels. Um, some people require more food to feel satisfied than others. Um, somebody who weighs 120 pounds 
is going to feel satisfied or full or sufficient uh, with maybe, you know, a, a small plate of food. Whereas somebody my size, a big guy pushing 300 pounds, um, you know, it's going to take two large plates for me to feel full, to feel satisfied. And so then the issue becomes, okay, well, where where is gluttony then? Because, um, and my one brother's definition of gluttony was to overeat, to, to eat in excess. And my issue with that definition is that, that it's vague. Um, to eat in excess would, would be a different level for different people. There, there's not a clear black and white amount that you can point to and say, once you cross this line, you're in gluttony. And so, and I also, I had, I had, uh, pre, we had previously discussed this issue and I had always, um, determined that gluttony is not just excessive eating, but it's like a greedy consumption. And after we went back and forth, I, I guess I, I was misusing the word greedy, um, because, the idea I was using was not just, um, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. It was a uh, 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 more of a careless or reckless eating, just eating. Um, man, how how would I define that? It's um, yeah, I guess it just just a careless eating. It's it's um, devouring food for the sake of devouring just like you know I can eat as much as I want because blah 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 it's it's it comes down to a, a, a heart issue it's a it's a motive issue and man I'm doing a bad job of describing that I can't remember what the term I used was but um basically my argument was that okay so I, I was trying to take this step by step with my brother because um, he he was just sticking with the overeating is gluttony, and I just kept coming back to well hold on now. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> show me the scripture that 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 point out gluttony. Show me where where because we hear about gluttony as one of the seven deadly sins, but that's Roman Catholicism. That's not Bible. There's, there's not seven deadly sins in the Bible. All sins are deadly. And so I want you know, show me what the commandment is on gluttony. Show me, show me the scripture that says gluttony is sinful. And there's not a direct verse on it. There's verses that um, speak about gluttony as being a, an unwise or unhealthy decision. But there's not a specific command against it. It says that gluttony leads to poverty and that you should uh, train your children to, to avoid gluttons and drunkards. Um, but there's not a specific command that says, you know, you shall not participate in gluttony or do not, you know. So, so that, that's step one. There's, there's not a direct command against it. There's more of this principle of gluttony as an unwise, unhealthy behavior. It's, it's something that should be avoided. It's, it's something that, um, when done, will lead to poverty. So we can agree on that. And then the second step is, well, let's define then. So, so we're in, me and my brother, we're in agreement on that. Gluttony is very, it's an unwise thing to do. It, it's something that is unhealthy and unwise. And if you're looking to be a wise, healthy person, you should avoid it. So then the second step is, okay, well, let's define gluttony then. What does the word mean? And unfortunately, Strong's um, gives kind of a, a hard definition. Um, it, it's an act of wind. It's, it's described as a shaking, like when wind shakes or a quaking. Or, and then another definition was um, loose, as, as in a moral sense, loose morals. So it really has nothing to do with eating. Um, I think there's there's context in the scriptures where like a riotous eater of flesh, um, and then the, the word glutton is used in that same uh, scripture. 
but the definition itself it is tricky because because what is meant by shaking wind or quaking or loose morals and the image that came to my mind is like in the movies when you see a king at a banquet table and he's just piggishly eating you know the drumstick and throwing it aside and grabbing a handful of mashed potatoes and you know and and just being a slob and and because he's being loose and careless with the food it's not necessarily the overeating it's the uncaring just um loose behavior with the food just gorging himself without thought just you know not caring about the food because if it's over again if if we're going to define gluttony as overeating or excessive eating then then you have to define what over is or what excess is and I think that that's going to be different for every person. Like I pointed out to him because the Proverbs are to train up children. So I was like, if you're training your child and your child's sitting at the table and he's eating two plates of food and he says, but dad, I'm still hungry. Are you going to deny him food and say, no, you, you can't have any because you would then be a glutton? I don't think that's what gluttony is. I think he is permitted to eat until he is satisfied. I think that's what the scriptures tell us. I think food is given to us as a gift from God to eat, drink, and be merry to the satisfying of our soul that that we are to eat until we're satisfied. Eat as much honey as is sufficient for thee. You know, eat eat for your enjoyment. Eat till you're satisfied. Eat till you're fulfilled. And and I don't think anybody can tell anybody else, oh, you've you've overeaten now. I think the idea of gluttony comes down to your heart. It comes down to um, testing yourself to say, why am I eating more? Am I truly not satisfied? Do I really need some more food? Or am I just like um, carelessly consuming or just excessively and without thought consuming, am I am I greedily consuming because it's available? Like, oh, I got all this food and just consuming it with, with this ravenous appetite that, that oh, it's mine. You know, I get to eat or stuffing yourself out of, out of some impure motive. Um, I, I would say that is what gluttony is, is, is to just, like in my mind, I, I think gluttony is closer to when, when as Americans we go to a buffet and we fill a full plate of food and then we take two bites of a thing and, and leave the rest to the trash. I think we're, we're carelessly consuming food then. I think we're just being reckless with, with food and, and I think that's probably closer to what gluttony is than, than just simply saying overeating. And I, I think the truth is probably somewhere in between because I, I think overeating probably has some some um, uh, application there because like my brother pointed out uh, and wisely so he made a really good point that often gluttony is is tied in with drunkenness and so you know in the same way that we would say drunkenness is an excess of wine why wouldn't gluttony be an excess of, of food or something else it doesn't necessarily have to be food and so I, I think that when we tie the two together, that it's this reckless, careless, um, just almost like a brute beast attitude towards food tied in with overeating, we're, we're probably getting close to what gluttony is. And and so I guess the, the point I was, I was ultimately trying to make was I, I don't think we can prescribe an idea of what we think overeating is and then and then try to bind that upon somebody else's consciousness and say oh if you eat this amount you are a glutton because i think that there's just there's people with different metabolisms there there's people with different um sizes and and some people are not going to be satisfied with a small plate of food that would satisfy somebody else and I think food has been given to us as a gift from God to enjoy and to, to our satisfaction, to, 
to, so I think if a meal is put before us and, and we are worshipful to God for that meal and thankful and joyous over this gift that he has given to us, I think we are permitted to eat until we're satisfied. We're permitted to eat um, and as much as, as, as we see sufficient for us. And I think if we were to go beyond that for some reason, um, you know, I don't know why a person would eat past their full point, but if there's some sort of just greed or pride or, or just like, I don't know, just if there's some reason to, to, to gorge yourself beyond, you know, what has satisfied you, then I think we're passing into the gluttony thing. And, and again, I, I, I think the best example of that is if you're training your child, you know, and, and he's sitting at the table and he's eating two plates and he says, Dad, I'm still hungry. I, I don't think we would turn him away and say, no, you can't have any more. You know, you're a glutton. I, I think we, we would try to train our children to say, you know, are you still hungry? Uh, you know, are you not satisfied? And train them to, to, to appreciate food, to be thankful for food, um, to worship God in this, this great gift that he's given us, to not be reckless or careless with food, and, and to not eat beyond that full limit. Um, my brother, you know, was tying in a lot of health issues with it as well, which I, I think there's wisdom in that, but I think that goes beyond scripture. I think a lot of the health problems we have and the reason there's a lot of obese, overweight people is, is not necessarily just because of overeating. I think it's because of the types of food that are being, being eaten. I think it's the, the processed junk food, the fast food, the sugary foods, things like that. And then also the, the what is, what, what's the word, the, the sedentary lifestyle, the, the, the lazy lifestyle, not getting enough. Because if you eat, let's say you're a person who eats 4,000 calories a day, and, and when you do, you're feeling satisfied. You don't feel like you're overeating, you're eating to your satisfaction level. If you eat 4,000 calories a day, uh, but then you go and work out and you burn 2,500 calories or, or during your day, you're putting in laborious work and, and you're burning off those calories, I think you're going to be a healthy person. I don't think you're going to be an overweight person. I, I, I don't think the amount of food you're eating has anything to do with it. I think if, if you're eating the right foods and you're getting the right exercise, those things are balanced out and you're going to be healthy. And as far as sin goes, I don't think there's any sin in eating until you're satisfied. I, I believe the sin comes in uh, when, when there's something else added to it, where, where you're treating food as like this uh, commodity that you have an excess of and you can just be reckless and careless with it and, and, and like just greedily consume it or, or whatever, you know. So, I don't know, it was, a, it was an interesting conversation um, just because, like I said, we... we there was a lot of debate, a lot of heated debate, uh, but I think when when we slowed down down and tried to say, okay, what 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 are the verses on this? What do they say? What is the definition on gluttony? And then and then we'll go from there. Let's define the term. Let's find the scriptures on it and see what it really says. And let's not try to add um, our own opinions or thoughts on it, or try to impose what I believe on another person, you know, let's just see what the scriptures say, um, ultimately it was a good conversation, like I say, I I don't know if we came to a complete agreement on it, but, um, at least, you know, it, it helped clarify some things in my mind, and hopefully in my brother's as well, but, um, yeah, uh, that's what I got on that subject. One of the things I've noticed in my faith is that no matter how much I'm struggling, no matter how disconnected I feel from the Lord or how wore down and beat up I feel over um, my repetitive sin behaviors or how distant I feel from God or depressed or despondent or whatever the case may be, um, 
my mind is continually moving forward, uh, thinking about the kingdom and, and ways to, to serve the kingdom and ways to um, increase in holiness and ways to progress in this faith. And I guess that's what Paul was talking about when he talked about how uh, he sees two laws at work in his body. And so with the one, you know, the, the flesh desires to serve sin, the flesh desires to, to do sinful things is, um, you know, doing what you don't want to do um, in the mind and in the heart. But your flesh just like an ox led to the slaughter, it's, it's, you sometimes just fall in, not fall in your body, you, you choose, but you have these, these behaviors, these, these, um, addictions, so to speak, sinful things that, that draw you. And so he talked about how with his body, he'll, he'll serve the, that law, but with his mind, he'll serve Christ. Um, because we have this duality of nature. We have this flesh body we're stuck in, but we have this inner man um, that is always striving to serve Christ, striving for holiness, striving to walk in the ways of the Lord. And so, even like I say, even when I'm down, like, you know, I'm not in a good spot, spiritually speaking, right now. I feel like I just fail over and over and over again in certain things, and um, it's wearisome, you know, just wore out. But even then, in that, my mind is is continually looking for ways to serve the kingdom. And so, I was thinking about um, as we're getting closer to the new year. I I have no idea. It just like a spontaneous thought occurred to me. I was like, I wonder. So I got these twelve months. I'd like to focus on a different um, holiness attribute. Some uh, a righteous attribute every every month of the next year, and so I was like, I, I should just get a calendar, and I'll highlight like one characteristic per month, and then maybe uh, put some verses, um, like for each a verse a week for that month, to really meditate on and to think about. And if it's on the calendar right in front of me, it'll cause me to continually think about these things. And so I was wondering, I, I thought to myself, like, how many fruits of the Spirit are there? And so I went to, uh, what is it, Galatians 5, and looked that up, and, and it turns out there's nine. There's uh, love, joy, um, peace, long-suffering, um, goodness, meekness, temperance, faith. Um, I forget what else, the other ones that are there, but... There was nine total, and so then I was like, all right, what are three others? And I just thought of three things that, that are on my mind a lot, three things that, that I find important, that I often desire to strive after, um, one being thankfulness, um, two being um, mercy, uh, being merciful, and three being uh, content. Um, so with those, I had 12. And so my idea is, and and then today I went through and I found, um, so I looked at the calendar and figured out how many weeks there are for each month and then found a corresponding number of verses um, that focus on that particular attribute. Um, so like with joy, you know, I, I've got five verses or whatever it is, and then faith, five verses, and, and long suffering and so on and so forth. <coughs> Excuse me, I'm still getting over a, a head cold here, but... Um, so with that, I was thinking, that, man, I'm hoping that this will be a good way. Like I say, I'm always trying to think in new ways to keep my mind on Christ. And um, with this calendar, you know, starting in January, I'll have uh, love. I think that that's the first one. It's like love or joy. I can't remember. But um, and then start, starting January 1st in that, that first week. I've I've got a verse on love that I'll write down and and just I'll look upon that and think about that and and meditate on that as I try to renew my mind and develop that fruit within me you know to be more loving to have these verses to encourage me and spur me on towards being more loving and then February you move on to joy and the corresponding verses to think about and meditate um to focus on joy 
and and hopefully it'll help because I, I I really get disappointed with the lack of fruit in my life or the lack of the maturity like like the the big one for me is temperance right now because as I think about my life and and the struggles I'm currently having and and the hardships um that I've put myself into it's because of a lack of temperance there there are things I should not be doing and because I don't have self-control, I keep doing them, and it just brings me further and further down into this hole, and it's it's so discouraging and so wearisome. It's like, man, I, I'm pleading with God, please give me temperance, give me self-control so that when I think about doing these things, I can have the, the self-control to say no, to say, to say no, to resist the flesh, to resist that desire because I'm so sick and tired of doing it, you know, and, and so I'm hoping um, that through this meditation on the word throughout the next year, throughout the weeks, um, you know, as I look at these verses on these particular characteristics, it, it'll help um, to develop this in me. Um, you know, that that's my hope anyways, you know, um, so we'll see how it goes. Alright, so that's what I got for you guys this week. Um, as always, I truly appreciate you listening. I love you, and Lord willing, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>